Well, thank you, son, and good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. Uh, this is our second visit to Indianapolis in less than a week. It has something to do with a certain grandbaby, you understand. Uh, but actually, we visit you just about every Sunday morning. Did you know that? We're one of your online uh, congregational members, I guess. And uh, the hour change difference between Joplin, Missouri and Indianapolis, Indiana works out great because if we're home on that given Sunday, we can tune in at uh, our time, 8.15, and listen to the service. And if Casey's not too windy, we get all the sermon before leaving for Bible school. It's great. So if you are joining online like we do in Missouri today, that's great. And I'll remind you to fill out the little connection card as well. But it's wonderful to greet you today. Let me start with a secular proverb. Have you ever heard this before? What is one person's treasure is another person's trash. Or sometimes it's inverted. What's one person's trash is another person's treasure. And I guess that's true. Maybe it's true for you. You're in church, so be honest. How many of you go to garage sales? Raise your hand. Just to, Oh, yeah. Keep your hands up. I'm going to pray for you. Because I'm not a shopper, and I don't like to go to garage sales. I hate hosting them, that's for sure. In fact, I kind of think it's a, a mass plot to redistribute junk throughout the universe. That's kind of my thinking. But you know, one person's trash is another person's treasure. We actually hosted one at our house some years ago. We were going on sabbatical to live in Colorado for a year while I was going to do some study. And so we had a garage sale. I actually sold a car at that particular garage sale. I really did. But anyway, my father, who's 91 this month and preaching this morning, he's finishing up an interim ministry. He'll finish on Easter and probably be his last sermon, I would guess. But anyway, uh, Dad had given us this old army green ugly something because my wife likes antiques. That's not what she has in mind. But it was an old dictaphone. Does this make any sense at all? You speak into a receiver, like something the military would have used, and it records your voice like a tape recorder on cylinders. Is this making any sense at all? And, and so he had given this to us, and we just, of course, used it all the time in the attic. And so uh, anyway, we thought, hey, garage sale, let's get rid of this. So we put it out there. Nobody even took a passing glance until about the last hour. And this old fella in a beat-up pickup came by, and he looked at that and walked away, and he looked at that and walked away, and he looked at that and, and then came back. And he said, what is that? And I said, well, sir, I don't really know. I think it's an old dictaphone. I think you speak in this receiver here, and then uh, you, it records your voice on these cylinders. He said, does it work? I said, well, sir, I really don't know. We've never tried it before. He said, well, uh, what do you want for it? I said, well, sir, I really don't know. He said, I said, uh, you know, it just, uh, he said, well, I've been shopping all morning. I've only got $8 left. Would you take $8? I said, well, sir, I really, sold. <laughs> and I took his $8 and he picked up that thing and went to his truck. And I thought to myself, wow, what a sucker. And he's probably walking to his truck thinking, wow, what a sucker. Because what is one person's trash is another person's treasure. You know what I'm saying? Well, our text today talks about a treasure. 
As Casey mentioned, you're in this series of messages on secrets of the kingdom from Matthew chapter 13. Now, last week you talked about mustard seeds, and one of my co-workers, Jim Dalrymple, was here with you, and I heard he put a mustard seed on all your pews there. Don't look for a pearl taped underneath your pew today. Bible college professors can afford mustard seeds, pearls not so much. So anyway, uh, we are in this story where Jesus tells these two parables about a treasure hidden in a field and about a pearl merchant in search of fine pearls. So since, as Casey mentioned, this is kind of Jesus' sermon in parables, which are kind of the upside-down stories of the kingdom of heaven, maybe we need to start there. A little girl came to her mom one day, and she said, Mom, can I go outside and play with the boys? And mom said, No, the boys are too rough. The little girl thought for a minute, and then she said, If I find a smooth one, can I play with him? Well, you might find you a smooth boy, but you know what's kind of hard to find in the Gospels? A smooth parable. Because most of them, quite frankly, are like holy sandpaper. They just kind of whack you on the back of the head and rough you up a bit. And even these ones that we're going to look at today, they might seem kind of innocent enough. Kingdom's like a treasure. Kingdom's like a pearl merchant. How harmless could that be? Oh, just you wait. Buckle up. It might have more to say to your life than you think. So I'd like to start with a definition. I guess that's the nature of college professors. I'd like to define what a parable is. And I'm going to steal one from a famous Bible scholar. His name is C.H. Dodd. And this is what he says a parable is. A parable at its simplest is a metaphor or simile usually drawn from nature or common life. Now get this next part. Arresting the listener in its vividness or strangeness, the subject of which is left in sufficient doubt as to its precise application to tease the mind into active thought. Now that's kind of an involved definition, isn't it? But it's pretty good. Let me run it by you one more time. At its simplest... A parable is a metaphor or simile drawn from nature or common life, the subject of which, arresting us in its vividness and strangeness, the subject of which is left in sufficient doubt as to its precise application to tease the mind into active thought. Let me illustrate it. Pretend for a minute that we've got a Jewish father named Levi. We've got a Jewish wife named Hannah. And we've got a little boy named Josiah. And Levi's a farmer, and he's got most of his stuff all cleaned up. Farming's coming along pretty good. He says to his wife, Hannah, you know, honey, I think I'm going to take Josiah and go listen to that Galilean preacher today, this guy they call Jesus of Nazareth. And Hannah says, no, you're not taking Josiah. The last time you took Josiah, you lost him. No, now come on, honey. I'll watch him, I promise. Well... Okay, but you be home for dinner, and don't you be late. All right. So Levi takes Josiah, and off they go to listen to Jesus preach. And they listen to Jesus preach all day long. At the end of the day, they come home. It's time for supper. And Hannah says, come in, come in, sit down, sit down. Well, she says. And Levi says, well, what? Well, 
was he a good preacher? And Levi says, well, I don't, I don't know if you'd call it preaching, really. Well, what was it? Well, Levi says he just kind of told stories. Hannah says, were they good stories? Well, I guess. Well, what were they about? Well, you know, taking seeds and planting them in the ground and uh, mustard seeds and leaven and dough, yeast and uh, treasures and pearl merchants and dragnets and fishing and stuff like that. Hannah says, well, what do they mean? And Levi says, I don't know. About two days later, old Levi's working out in the garden. He's hoeing his beans, and he has a Christian twitch, you know, and wakes up. Hannah! Hannah! I don't think he meant dirt. I think he was talking about our hearts. You see what I'm saying? About the time you think you know what a parable means, it's like a bar of soap in the shower. It escapes you. And that's kind of how these stories are. They're kind of upside down. It's, it's not how we look at the world. It's how God looks at the world. And so Jesus just speaks in parables. And the ones before us today are the parables of the treasure hidden in the field and the parable of the merchant in search of fine pearls. You want to read it with me? Here's Matthew 13, beginning with verse 44. I want to read to you from the English Standard Version this morning. This is what it says. The kingdom of heaven, that's a big deal, isn't it? The kingdom of heaven, the reign of God, the government of God, this is how it works. It's like, like, like a treasure. Is that how you view it? It's like a treasure that's been hidden in the field, which a man found... He looked this way, he looked this way, he covered it up. And in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Wow. Next, Jesus says in verse 45, again. The word again is a clue that this one is sort of, kind of, like the first one. Again. The kingdom of heaven is like, it's like, it's not exactly like a pearl. It's like a merchant in search of fine pearls. He's hit every garage sale in Indianapolis. He has searched the flea markets. He has gone to the mall, Lord have mercy, when they're selling everything. He has searched and searched and searched, and he found a pearl of great value, and he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Okay, there you have it. Two upside-down parables. They seem, they seem smooth, but they might not be smooth. So could we kind of do this today? Kind of for our approach, let's think about this. Uh, let's first of all sweep the floor. Can we just sweep the floor and say what it doesn't mean? And then can we kind of come near and say what it might mean? And then can we kind of draw a bead and say, it's got to mean this. You follow that? So let's sweep the floor, first of all. What does it not mean? What do these parables not teach us? Let's just get rid of the chaff here for just a minute. What do they not teach us? Well, first of all, they don't teach us that unethical behavior is okay. Now you say, where in the world are you getting that? From Bible scholars. 
There's a Bible scholar by the name of John Dominic Crossan, bless his little gizzard. And he says that obviously this parable, he doesn't have a great respect for Jesus of Nazareth, by the way. He doesn't even believe in what we're going to celebrate in two weeks. But he's a Bible scholar. And he says that this parable by Jesus obviously teaches the end justifies the means. That this sneaky rascal, he found that treasure in the field. He was plowing, maybe accidentally, kerchunk. His plow hits something, and he puts the plow to its side, and he digs down and finds the treasure. He looks this way. He looks that way. Nobody's going to know about this. He covers it back up. He goes and sells everything and buys that field. So he's obviously doing something kind of sleight of hand, underhanded. So it's okay to be unethical. So long as the end justifies the means. That's what John Dominic Crossan says this story means. Can I tell you a fancy word in graduate school I learned for that? Baloney. <laughs> no, the parable does not teach that unethical behavior is okay. No, 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 no. In fact, can I give you just a little clue about something? And that it's the, in the ancient world, they actually hid, their banks were their backyards and temples. We'll come back to that. Neither does it teach this, that salvation is achieved by human effort. Because, I mean, after all, the guy who found the treasure in the field, he had to dig, didn't he? He had to go to sell and buy. The pearl merchant, he had to make some transactions. He found the pearl. These guys were busy. And it sounds at first glance, if you just apply this since this is Scripture and since we're in church... Maybe this just means that you, you kind of get salvation the old-fashioned way. You earn it. You go up to heaven, and you knock on the door and say, Well, here I am. Where do I sit? Nobody gets to heaven that way. It might seem that the human effort is what's involved in getting salvation. Not really. Galatians 2.16 says three times in one verse, We're not saved by works of the law. Three times. We're not saved by anything we do then how is it that we have to do some things? We came over here last night from Illinois. I was teaching a class that I teach every spring for Lincoln Christian Seminary. And this one was on the theology of the Holy Spirit. It's really an online class, but I get them face-to-face -face for 12 hours on Friday night and Saturday. So they have to write an article based on an essay that our founding dean, Seth Wilson, wrote years ago. It's entitled, The Imperatives of Salvation. And... Uh, I'm embarrassed to tell you, I waited till he died at nine, age 92 before I edited it, because I was scared he'd be upset with me, and I had such great respect for Brother Wilson. So after he died, I put my own pen to that article, and because the article's dealing with this, how is it that salvation is free, given to us by the love of God, none of us deserve it, he does it, and yet we got to do all these things the New Testament tells us to do? How do the imperatives of salvation go hand in hand with being saved by the love of God and the grace of God, which we don't deserve? How can all these things save us, but none of these things save us? Are you confused? Well, however you articulate all of that, I can tell you this. Uh, we don't save ourselves. The parable doesn't teach us that just by human effort we get to go to heaven. So that's sweeping the floor. How about this? Can we come a little closer? Can we come a little closer to what the parables might mean this morning by suggesting a few things? For instance, maybe this. Maybe, maybe we should know this. If we come a little closer, the value of the kingdom of heaven might determine your own end time. 
I'm thinking about my end time a little bit more now because I got my Medicare card in my billfold right here. I just had a 65th birthday. So you kind of take stock of your mortality, don't you? Sure. And so I'm thinking about my own end time. Will my own end time be determined by the value I place on God's reign in my life? Well, I can show you from, if you look at the context, see, this is Matthew 13. The whole sermon is in parables, as you know from the series you're doing. Four of these stories Jesus tells from a boat. Four of these stories he tells in the house. The disciples ask him about it. But guess what paragraph precedes these two stories? Guess what paragraph follows these stories? It's parables dealing with the end time. In the paragraph previous to these stories, Jesus is talking about the weeds and the wheat. The field is the world, says Jesus. And at the end of time, God's going to separate the weeds from the wheat. So maybe... My value I place on the kingdom will determine whether I'm weeds or wheat. Think? The paragraph that follows this story is the parable of the dragnet, and it's not a television program that took place in L.A. Boy, did I date myself right there. If you're laughing, you're my age. Anyway, the dragnet, no, this is about a 30-foot net with floats and weights attached to it that fishermen pull through the sea at night and catch fish. And in the morning, they separate the good from the bad. It's an end time parable. Huh. Maybe this story, these stories mean that the value I place on the kingdom, since Jesus arranged them this way, will determine whether I go to heaven or go elsewhere. Maybe that's the case. Can we draw it down a little bit further? Maybe, maybe it's this. Maybe the value of the kingdom is not so much the issue, but maybe we could say this, that the kingdom of heaven, some people find it accidentally, and some people find it on purpose. There, there is a, a scholar, a Bible scholar by the name of Klein Snodgrass, quite a name, huh? And he says that um, this parable, these parables are plurisignificant. He says they're twin similitudes, but they're not identical twins. One teaches one thing, one teaches another. Both of them indicate the value of the kingdom, but it looks like the first guy is just plowing along, and kerchunk, the plow hits something. He finds the treasure in the field accidentally. Now, Jesus never said he found it accidentally, but there is a gospel that's not in your Bible that was written later, way after the apostles had died, called the Gospel of Thomas. Maybe you've heard of this. And it's one of those non-Bible books. But on saying number 109, the Gospel of Thomas says this guy found it accidentally. Did he? You know, some people find the kingdom of God that way. I remember reading in Acts chapter 16 about a certain jailer who lived at Philippi, and one night there was an earthquake. And you know what his question was to Paul and Silas on the second missionary journey? What must I do to be saved? He just went to work. He was on the night shift. And the earthquake got his attention. Uh, sometimes people find the kingdom accidentally. 
when we were serving our church in Denver before going back to the Bible college to teach, our church building was right on the corner of Highlands Ranch Parkway and Broadway that go right downtown to Denver. We lived on the southernmost suburb in Highlands Ranch. And you know why some people came to our church? Because they saw the building. We'd about five, about, it wouldn't be uncommon for five families to come every Sunday. How did you come to know us? Oh, we just were driving by. Maybe you got here today because your wife drug you here. She's trying to get you ready. Two weeks for the Easter, you know, just come now. Some people just, Paul Harvey tells a story about being on vacation in Arizona. He, he just went to a church on Sunday night. He wasn't planning to do anything. But he heard the gospel and he went forward and accepted Christ as his Savior, Paul Harvey. Huh. Some people find the kingdom accidentally. Some people find the kingdom on purpose. I mean, they've been searching every flea market there's possible. They've been looking for this, dabbling in this, checking out this, trying this philosophy, trying that philosophy, and nothing brings them happiness. I remember reading about a certain Ethiopian eunuch. He was returning from Jerusalem, reading the Scriptures, reading Isaiah. Oh, we need to read Isaiah in the next few weeks. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. And so he's reading, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or someone else? And Philip jumps up in that chariot, and from that Scripture preaches unto him Jesus. And they come to some water, and he says, here's water. What would hinder me from being baptized as an Ethiopian eunuch? So he's searching, he's looking, he's longing. Have you known somebody like that? That they've tried this and they've tried that? I'm thinking right now of a fellow I talked to in a church just south of St. Louis years ago. He was serving as an elder in the congregation by then. But he told me his testimony. He had been a Zen Buddhist. He had been a Mormon. He had tried this. He had tried that. I said to him, how in tarnation did you ever find your way to the church? He said, well, one day I just picked up my Bible and I decided to try to read it on its own terms. And now he was serving as an elder. Which gives me great confidence that people can still read the book and know what God wants them to do. So he had been searching, trying this, trying that. Maybe that's what it means. Well, now wait a second. I think we can kind of, you know, sweep the floor. No, that's not it. We can come near. Maybe that's it. How about we do this? How, let's just draw a bead. Let's, let's just draw a bead right down on these two stories and say, but maybe it mostly means this. So let me suggest a couple things. Maybe it means this. The government of God is economically valuable. The government of God is economically valuable. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. There's nothing unethical about what the guy did. I mentioned this earlier, but in the ancient world, the banks were kind of your backyard and the pagan temples, to tell you the truth. So by him covering up this, whether you want to call it squatter's rights or whatever, nothing he did was unethical. Everything he did said this thing has value. So can I ask you two Sundays outside of Easter? Is the reign of God in your life economically or extremely valuable? Is it more valuable than your relationships? Is it more valuable than your home, life, and family? Is it more valuable than your library? Got my own toes that time. Is it more valuable than your 401k? Is it more What is the price of God's reign in your heart? 
Is it really for you like a treasure hidden in the field that you would do anything to possess? There was a lady by the name of Helen Lemel. Do you recognize that name? She taught music at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. And she studied abroad music overseas, and she lived clear into her 90s. She died out in the Northwest. I don't remember if it was Washington or Oregon. But one day, Helen Lemo read a little tract, a missionary tract. And the tract said, look fully into the eyes of Jesus. And when you do, the things of this world will acquire a strange dimness. And that gave Helen Lemel an idea. And she went and she wrote out the words, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. The reign of God in our lives is economically valuable more than anything else in the world. Is that how you view it this morning? See, I told you, there's a little grit in these parables, isn't there? And not only that, but let's draw down on it even a little further with the pearl merchant in search of fine pearls. The kingdom of God, the reign of God is no longer economically valuable, it's also economically costly. Costly. It will cost you everything. The good news is, you can pay it. You can pay it. He doesn't demand much. Just all you are. And everyone in this room can pay it. Oh, Bob Shannon, Robert Shannon, famous oratorical preacher of days gone by. Bob Shannon used to say, whenever you're studying the Bible, look for the verbs, look for the verbs. It's the verbs that really matter. What did this guy do? He sought, he found he went, he sold, he bought. And you know what? I don't think you'd ever talk him out of that pearl. Like the treasure hidden in the field guy, he had joy at the prospect of losing it all so he could gain it all. Oh, this kingdom, this reign of God in the human heart, this is very, very costly. Would you allow to the pulpit just a little fatherly pride for a moment? We love this church. We're enjoying being online members. I know, son, I need to give more. But anyway, uh, we enjoyed John, and the music today was awesome, wonderful. And this preacher, this senior leader you have now here, when he was in college, he preached in chapel for his senior sermon. I remember it very well. He preached about another tax collector. Not Matthew. Matthew's a local customs official. He's low on the totem pole. But Zacchaeus, now he is a chief tax collector. And Casey preached a sermon in chapel entitled, The Gospel is for Sellouts. And he talked about that wee little man who climbed up that tree to see Jesus. And he said, you know, Zacchaeus is kind of a sellout. First, he sold out to Rome to collect taxes. And then he met Jesus. 
and he sold out to Jesus. Lock, stock, and barrel. Jesus never asked him to do what he did, but he said, if I've cheated anybody, if, Zacchaeus, if, if I've I will restore it fourfold, and I'll give half my money to the poor. So when in 2016 we got to Jericho, I said to Casey, you got to preach that sermon. You give me the Cliff Notes version, we don't have all day. But get, just, you got to preach that sermon here in Jericho. We're standing right at Jericho. you got to tell the people that the gospel is for sellouts. Have you sold out yet? Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it well, didn't he? When Jesus calls a man, he bids him, come and die. Come and die. Yeah, this is what I came from Joplin, Missouri to tell you today. In a sentence, in a nutshell, based on your series of messages, these secrets of the kingdom, how that this, this treasure hidden in the field and this pearl of great price, it's costly, but it's worth everything. This is what I came to tell you. The reign of God in your life is most costly, very costly, but it is so worth it. It is so worth it. When we were in Rome in 2009, Dr. Mark Moore, a co-worker, and I took about 36 kids to, to Turkey and Greece and Rome to show them the steps that the Apostle Paul went on, went to the seven cities of Asia Minor and Ephesus, you know, in Smyrna, Thyatira, and Pergamum. Went over into Athens, Greece, and visited those cities. Went to Delphi and all these wonderful places. I finally got to Rome. And we went to the old city part, the city set on seven hills. And we came to where they will show you that this was the prison of the Apostle Paul. There you see it. Our Catholic friends have built a church over it to mark the site. You'll see a lot of churches, of course, that mark sites in the ancient world. This next slide shows, and this, the spelling of the prison is different. This is maybe, do you suppose, where Paul wrote 2 Timothy? I don't know. I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall award me on that day. So Paul maybe writes 2 Timothy. Show the next slide. This is us, the guy with the white trousers and blue trench. That's me with the hat. And you've got to go down some steps into this terrible, terrible, terrible prison. And the last slide, if you will, this is Bob and Terry Nunley. You don't know them. But Bob is six foot four, and his head is hitting the top of that prison. That's why I'm showing you this picture. Bob is one of our elders at the church where I serve a little bit, and Terry works for a crisis pregnancy center in our town. They're wonderful Christian people. We've got this shot just when they were down there in that prison. That prison is about large as this stage area where I'm speaking right now, and in fact, um, maybe eight people could exist there, maybe. Scholars believe that as many as 30 people were there when Paul was there. You'd have to sleep standing up. And I got to tell you, folks, it was overwhelming. I came up out of that prison. I was bawling like a baby. Another preacher that used to preach in Crown Point, Indiana, Lynn Ragsdale, came up to me. We embraced, and he said, it's been so easy for me. And all I could think to say was, it has cost me nothing compared to what Paul paid. Think about that Catholic priest who said, everywhere Paul went, there was riot or revival. Where I go, they serve tea. <laughs> hey, let's be honest, it's pretty easy in the United States of America, isn't it? Even with all our problems, even with all our problems, 
You've been thrown in jail for your faith? So it's a big price to pay this following Jesus and being in the kingdom. But every one of you can pay it. And maybe two weeks out from Easter this morning, you came here and somebody drug you here. I don't know. And maybe you never understood the value of the kingdom, the God's reign in your life. And maybe you say, well, what, 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 then what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? What, what's next? What's the next step? Maybe you want to pray with somebody. Maybe you want to co continue the conversation of faith journey. There's that little next steps place back there. You can go. I'll be down here with Casey at the end of the service if you want to chat. But dear friends, the reign of God is very costly, but it is so worth it. Let's pray. Oh, God in heaven, thank you for the dynamic reign of Jesus in the human heart. May we value it like a treasure. May we pay any price like a great pearl. Help us, our Father, to live that this day and respond accordingly in Jesus' name. Amen.